Europe has plunged into an even deeper energy crisis as Russia cuts off imports through the Nord Stream pipeline in response to Western sanctions. While U.S. and European leaders pledged that sanctions would quickly bring the Russian economy to its knees, is the reality, in fact, the opposite? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check that out and all of his work at rdwolf.com. So, Professor Wolf, our listeners might be more familiar with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That was the planned, basically constructed pipeline that never became operational because of tensions between the West and Russia culminating with the war in Ukraine that began in February. But now the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, right, the pipeline that has been operational for many years and is a crucial artery for Europe to get gas from Russia, especially countries that are crucial to the European economy like Germany. I mean, are the sanctions essentially backfiring? The short, simple answer is yes. That doesn't mean they will continue to do that, but it is certainly a possibility that the backfiring will not only not stop, but get worse. Let me explain, but even before I do, there is a remarkable publication in an American pro-capitalist, anti-Russian magazine of, by, and for businessmen and women in our society. It's called Business Insider. And in the August 28th edition, so barely a week or so ago, it carried a remarkable article, very different from the overwhelming bulk of mainstream media, in which it basically asks your question and answers, yes, it has been a failure. And I'm going to be picking up from some of the materials, but if folks are interested, you can access Business Insider on the internet and find the August 28th article, I think you will get some more detail than I have time here to go into. We have been now for six plus months in a kind of struggle that is epical in a number of ways. First, it involves military force on one hand and the economic warfare on the other in a juxtaposition we've never quite seen on this scale before. 
the United States has not so far engaged directly militarily with what is ostensibly the enemy, Russia, but what is actually China, as I'll explain in a moment. And the Russians and the Ukrainians, as we all know, are fighting militarily on the ground in Ukraine. But the United States, with assistance from Britain, I should underscore the assistance from Britain is small because the economic and military and political footprint of that former empire is now very small. But in any case, led by the United States, which is applying sanctions. Most of the turmoil in the world, the inflations and so on, do not stem from the war. They stem much more from the sanctions. Whatever the contribution of the war itself is, is very secondary to what has happened with the sanctions. The sanctions, christened by the wave in Washington as, quote, the mother of all sanctions, because it exceeds the previous mother, which were Trump's economic trade war and tariff war against China during his administration. So here it is, the greatest organized effort to economically punish That's one word that Washington has used to economically weaken. That's another word Washington has used, Russia. The ostensible argument being that if you weaken or punish Russia, then perhaps it will make the government over there rethink its policies with regard to Ukraine and turn its troops around They have, as I assume everyone knows, gained enormous territory since the war began. The hope is to force Russia to turn its troops around, withdraw from all the territory they have won in their battles, and go back to the pre-March 2022 boundaries, etc., That has not happened, by the way. The Russians have pulled back nowhere. In fact, they continue to make advances punctuated by moments when they don't, celebrated with enormous enthusiasm in the West, but with a naivete about how warfare works that is, well, unusual, let's call it. But the Russians are far ahead in this war. They are a much bigger country than Ukraine. Ukraine used to be part of the Soviet Union, so the Russians know very well what the territory is, where the roads are, who the individuals are, where their sympathies lie, and all the rest. It's an unfair fight between Russia and Ukraine. And it couldn't have lasted a week if it weren't not for the backing of the United States and the West. Now, with that background, let's explain. The weapons Russia has with which to respond to this mother of all sanctions are basically few. They have enormous resources in oil and gas. They are now not only self-sufficient, but they are a net exporter of grain. And their gas and oil enable them to be an important producer, an exporter of fertilizer which is made from oil and gas, particularly oil, and therefore 
they respond to the sanctions imposed on them with the weapons they have. The sanctions imposed on them were draconian, no question. Half of the reserves lying behind the Russian ruble held in the West were seized. The Russians cannot access them. Number two, the Russians were excluded from SWIFT and other international means of payment. That's the only way international trade basically happens, is you buy from another country, you sell to another country, and the payments and the arrangements for the exchange of one currency to another are made through this SWIFT system, which the United States controls and dominates and has for many decades. The Russians were excluded. Then further steps were taken. The United States and certain European countries stopped importing Russian gas and oil. And the Ukrainians mined the Black Sea, which made it difficult for boats that the Russians and the Ukrainians might have used to export grain to function there. The Russians also mined the Black Sea, presumably as part of their struggle against Ukraine, that both countries share the Black Sea and so on. So these are life-threatening attacks on Russia. There's no question about it. This is an economy that is dependent on oil, gas, and grain as fundamental and cutting off their normal, historically developed markets is a blow that is severe. No question about it. And in the early weeks and months So the last week of February and the months of March and April, the United States was full of governmental officials at the very highest level, big bank presidents, I'm thinking here of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, all predicting as experts with absolute certainty that the Russians could not survive this economic warfare, these sanctions, and that their economy would collapse. There are still, by the way, a few people saying it, but nothing like the chorus, for example, in the month of March of this year. The article in Business Insider that I mentioned before, August 28th of Business Insider, is built around the notion that the experts were all wrong. What they predicted did not happen. Yes, for a very short time, the Russian ruble went down sharply. But it is, just to give you an idea, worth more against other currencies, including the dollar, than it was before the invasion. The downturn proved short and shallow, and the ruble has recovered. Likewise, in record time, The Russians found alternative markets. They are selling their oil and gas. They are exporting fertilizer and grain to others, not Western Europeans, not the United States. The United States was never a major customer, but the Europeans were. And that's why all of this is creating headlines in Europe on a scale we have never seen before. Within the last week, Germany, Britain, France, and other European countries have been cutting back on the use of energy, 
warning their citizens that this may be, quote, a cold winter. That is, they may not have enough fuel to heat homes, to run factories, to keep offices going. They have advised in some countries that people turn the light off if they're taking a shower, use colder water than they might. I kid you not, I could go through a long list of all of these. This should surprise no one. Let me stress this. This should surprise no one. The negotiations between the Russians and the Ukrainians, which was in reality between the Russians on the one side and NATO on the other, went on for a long time, years before the Russians in frustration, clearly because they tell us that, decided to have a special military operation, that's what they call it, to solve the problem of Crimea, the two easternmost regions of Ukraine, and so on. So frustrated, failed negotiations led the Russians to invade. Step one. Step two, immense frustration in the West that the Russians might achieve in military ways what had not been allowed for them to achieve in these negotiations. So they decided to wage economic and also military warfare. It's important that everybody understand, led by the Germans, but other countries in Europe have been providing personnel, tanks, weapons, money, not on the scale of the United States, but if you add it all up, it's a significant contribution from the Europeans to the Ukrainians so that they could make some sort of defense against the Russians, which is what they've done. They've made some sort of defense. Last point, the Russians, stung by the sanctions, enraged, no doubt, by the sanctions, did two things. Number one, the first and most important, they found other countries sufficiently large to buy the oil and gas upon which Russia depends. So they solved that most urgent problem. And they have found ways, they even made an agreement with Ukraine to permit grain to resume, both Ukrainian and Russian grain, to be exported through the Black Sea to the rest of the world. The most important single country, if you're interested, that came to Russia's rescue, India, which is buying way more oil than it ever did from Russia, basically absorbing a large portion of what they can no longer sell in the West. Now, it was taking the Europeans plenty of time to slowly withdraw from Russian oil. They were still importing quite a bit of it, making life easier for Russia. But there was enough of a disruption in the global oil business that the price of oil went up as everybody had to deal with the fact that you couldn't buy oil or you didn't want to from Russia. So you had to get it from somewhere else. So it had to be shipped in a different way. At each step, 
prices were raised to cope with the costs and with the opportunity that this disruption in the global oil market made possible. And again, let's remember, it was the sanctions against Russia, particularly those focused on oil and gas, that disrupted the world market, drove up the price of oil, which had two powerful effects. Number one, it spawned an enormous increase in inflation. Inflation was already happening in the United States and Western Europe. That had to do with COVID, that had to do with the failed responses to COVID and the disruption that COVID helped to cause. But it was an inflation that then got much worse when on top of all that had been going on before March of this year, you had the invasion, but even more important, the sanction program targeting oil and gas. And so this had two effects. One, it drove the price of oil and gas up dramatically. And this, of course, was the best possible news for Russia and very bad news for Ukraine. Why? Because the Russians found themselves in a situation where the sanctions that hurt them in one way by closing off mostly Europe as an export market was helping them in another way by driving up the price of that oil they did still sell in Western Europe and the global price of oil. Russia, being one of the major producers of oil on this planet, have reaped a windfall of profits from the high price of oil from March to this very moment that I'm speaking. You could almost say that financially, the war is paying for itself from Russia's point of view. And that, of course, means that the Russians have much less suffering from the war than you might otherwise have expected. And those experts who, met, who thought they were sure about it, it turned out they didn't calculate correctly, and so they didn't foresee this. The other effect, of course, is to inflate the price of oil, as I've said. And so the Western European countries went to work and last week came to an agreement that they're not going to pay more than a certain amount for oil. They're going to put a price cap on oil way below what it is now fetching in the so-called world market. Okay, the Russians then retaliated. As they have to each step in this sanction process, they said, okay, we're not sending any more oil or gas. We're closing it down. And therefore, you were worried before. Now you have much more to worry about because it's not a slow piecemeal reduction. It's all at once we're closing a major pipeline feeding Western Europe from Russia. And so now the level of chaos in Europe has reached a fever point, and the Europeans are discovering, and the United States allied is discovering it too, that this war has unleashed a tit-for-tat response from the United States on the one hand and from Russia on the other, and the net result is that inflation is terribly badly hurting Western Europe and the United States. And the sanctions that cause all of that are not having anything like the effect on Russia that were intended or planned. 
there's no way out of this that I can see because China, a close ally of Russia that has been helping Russia at every turn, hasn't even yet weighed in. They haven't yet bought more oil. But should Russia need it, there's no question they will do that. China has not fed the Russians with military support. Russians don't seem to need it. But if they did, the Chinese stand there. And the Chinese economy, being a very carefully managed economy, has been able to insulate itself from the global inflation. Let me drive that home by telling you what the latest statistics are. The inflation in Europe, 10.1%. The inflation in the United States, somewhere between 8.5% and 9%. The inflation in China, 2.7%. There's no comparison. So we are watching economic warfare not successful and military warfare for Ukraine not successful. It, of course, things could be worse and the Ukrainians make a mountain out of that, but they are not winning territory. They're losing it. We have a terrible problem. And here's the last thing. Mr. Biden, like most leaders in Europe, have staked their careers, committed themselves publicly, rhetorically, with lots of money to the Ukrainians. They are now in the terrible anxiety that they may have bet on the wrong horse. They may be losing. And whether they care about Ukraine or not is clearly an open question but they care about their own political positions and they're stuck with this Ukrainian situation and desperate politicians can do desperate things. As if to underscore the point, in the magnificently beautiful capital of the Czech Republic, Prague, this last week, 70,000, that's the official number, it was no doubt larger, but even in a small country like that, 70,000 people in the main square of the capital demanding an end to supporting Ukraine, demanding withdrawal from NATO or refusal to engage NATO, demanding that their own government step aside and blaming the inflation, among other things, that puts the fear of loss into the minds of major politicians. And that's a scary proposition for us as we look at what this situation is doing as it unfolds. Yeah, Professor Wolf, thank you. I mean, so many important points there. Just to reiterate a couple and, and maybe add some more. I mean, this was really sold to the public in the West as like the perfect proxy war. So don't worry about dying or fighting or sending your kids to go die and fight because Ukrainians will handle that. All the dying, all the suffering, that'll be done by the Ukrainians. We will impose economic measures, right? So no quote unquote boots on the ground, but the government in the West will impose economic measures, sanctions on Russia, so severe that it will be quickly brought to its knees and the war will be over before you know it. But that's not the case. I mean, it's turned out that that simply is not true. It's based in one sense on 
a misunderstanding of the fundamental changes that have gone on in the world economy, where now there are big enough markets to take up what's left over when the European governments, when the United States refused to buy Russian gas and oil and other essential exports. But those are definitely the two biggest ones. Finally, I mean, I think that at the onset of the war, some of the Western governments thought that Maybe this would actually result in the overthrow of the Russian government, that if the economic suffering is enough, if the war kind of grinds to a stalemate, the people of Russia could rise up in protest, essentially, and there could be essentially a color revolution, you know, a a mass movement, but backed by the West, supported politically, diplomatically, perhaps economically. And that could result in sort of one of their big fantasies coming true, right, you know, installing a compliant pro-Western government in Russia. But here's another place where this seems to have backfired. There was an opinion poll that came out over the weekend. It was conducted by YouGov, so a prominent polling firm. And it asked people how worried you are about social unrest in your country and strikes in your country. So in the United Kingdom, and this is in response to the rise in energy crisis, so as a consequence of the energy crisis, the number of people in the UK who said that they were concerned about social unrest was 57%, and the same for strikes, 57%. In Germany, 64% of people thought there would be social unrest. That rises to 69% in France and 75% in Poland. In Germany, there was 44% of people expected strikes rising to 65% in France and 63% in Poland. So, I mean, it's a really remarkable confluence of different factors going on because, you know, especially when it comes to the part of that question that asked about strikes, I mean, that also is related to just the broader inequality in Western countries and Western economies gotten worse over the course of the COVID crisis. Now there's sort of this latest chapter in this ongoing crisis, and maybe that's sort of the last straw In the UK, we've seen a historic number of strikes break out in recent weeks and months. I mean, this is really a truly explosive situation, isn't it? Yes, it is. And let me go through very quickly what some of the indexes are, indices of all of this. You have a new government in Great Britain, literally last week, which is more to the right than the one that left, which was more to the right than anyone can remember. So the response of the government in the UK is what? They are threatening to repress the wave of strikes, the railroad strikes in England going on now that are enormous, haven't seen things like that for decades. So it's exploding and you have a disconnect and opposition between the government and the mass of people. In France, Mr. Macron, he's also stuck with his relationship with the Ukraine. And the majority of French people, two-thirds, voted against him and his party in the last parliamentary election. He is a weak leader. The German government, led, by the way, by a socialist, is the most hooked into Ukraine. And they just last week, their parliament, seeing the writing on the wall, allocated 65 million euros. That's about the same in dollars these days because the euro has come down in value so badly. They voted 65 million to subsidize the mass of people so that they are less hurt by the rising energy prices because the government is going to give them money to help pay for the rising, I mean, literally bribing the mass of people to keep this weak government in power. 
You might also be surprised to know that one of the leading organizations in that demonstration of 70,000 people in Prague, the Czech Republic, was the Czech Communist Party. Whereas in Russia, the Russian Communist Party is supporting Putin, is supporting the war in the Ukraine. So you have all kinds of splits and differences and disagreements going on all over the lot that have to be factored in. The European situation is they're going into an economic disaster situation, horrible inflation. And believe me, as energy prices go up, it always takes many months before the higher energy prices, therefore the higher cost of trucking anything from point A to point B filters into the price of everything in the trucks that have to pay more for the gasoline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we haven't begun to see the end of this. And let's not leave out the United States. What are we doing to our working class? The same thing they're trying to do in Europe. Get away with a political program, in this case, Ukraine, that is at least, I'll be nice, the population is at least ambivalent. The rhetoric is hot, but the support is weak. Why? Because people are much more concerned about the cost of college, the cost of their groceries, the cost of their running their automobiles, etc., etc. And we have in this country what? A working class that was just put through the horror of two and a half years of COVID, the horror of an economic crash second only to the Great Depression that we just went through, now an inflation still whacking us and an interest rate increase deliberately imposed by the Federal Reserve as I'm speaking. That's too many hardships, one on top of the other, of a working class that was told there was an American dream somewhere in their future. They're finding it very hard to locate, and when they finally locate it, it's way out of their reach. That is going to impact our elections, our politicians, and especially the ones who are going to have to answer the question, with an economy and the trouble we're in, how do you square $70 billion for a war far away that basically happened because you couldn't reach an agreement with the Russians over a small piece of territory in a place most Americans can't find on a map. These are not problems that are going to go away, and all the fancy talk and spinning around them isn't going to solve anything. Well, I completely agree with you. That is all the time we have left, though. We've been joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He's the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out his work at rdwolf.com. I'm Walter Smolarek, filling in for Brian Becker. We at The Socialist Program bring you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 